morning, everyone, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and today is episode number seven. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. William Parker. Dr. Parker is an associate professor in the Department of Surgery, as well as an adjunct associate professor of global health at the Duke University School of Medicine in Durham, North Carolina. Of the many aspects of his research, a couple parts of it I wanted to discuss, one specifically related to gut immunity and the work he has been doing with the promicrobial aspects of the immune system. And then the second area he's done a lot of work in is what they call biota alteration theory or biome depletion theory. What used to be widely known as the hygiene hypothesis more widely can be described now as a biome depletion theory, which is essentially where changes in symbiotic organisms that exist within us, microbes and macrobes, which are larger creatures like parasites in our human ecosystem within our guts, is having an effect on our immune dysfunction and subsequent disease prevalence. And we're going to talk a bit about this over the next hour. Unfortunately, the podcast had some technical glitches in it when I went back and listened to it, and we were unable to re-record. So there are some little sounds that pop up that I'm not quite sure where they came from, so I will apologize in advance for those who listen to it and find it annoying. That being said, I'm going to read a little bit about the information that uh, Dr. Parker and I went back and forth with in email for those that don't want to listen to the frustrating sounds that pop up and want a little bit more of just the data as we discuss. So he writes to me in this email, Hi, Chris. I love the way you organize things. Sadly, biome depletion is an important component that, along with chronic psychological stress that our society standards impose on many, works with chemical exposures to destroy maternal and child health. Biome depletion is especially bad for women because biome depletion causes overreactive immune responses and women devote more energy to immune function than do men. Thus, women have more autoimmune and inflammatory-based neuropsychiatric issues than men, often by more than a margin of two to one. What we see with biome depletion is an increase across the board in what I like to call paranoid immune function. The system is so reactive to harmless things, paranoid, that it attacks itself, parentheses he calls Th1 or T helper cell 1 autoimmune disease, and harmless environmental antigens that we call Th2 or allergic type diseases via the adaptive immune system, which is our antibodies. Our work in wild rats shows that the effects are truly across the board. He goes on to state, that I think we have a very good handle on biome depletion causing or a necessary contributor to a number of neuropsychiatric problems. During our conversation, we look at the Stein New England Journal of Medicine study where they compared two enclaves of the United States where the Amish and the Hutterite populations live and looked at the differential outcomes of children born in these enclaves where the Amish group had much less asthma and allergy risk and the Hutterite group had a higher risk. 
And they posited that the reason this was happening was because the Amish had much more exposure to what they call eukaryotic symbionts or organisms from bacteria that lived in this area um, because they had much more exposure to animals as opposed to the Hutterite group. And this exposure was priming the immune system to actually function normally. And Dr. Parker went on to state that this is not new news. Brian Greenwood, back in 1968, knew that the loss of these complex eukaryotic symbionts, bacteria, was causing autoimmune disease. By 1970, he had proven that he could prevent lupus and arthritis in lab animals by exposing them to these, these bacterial organisms early on. In 1972, a military doctor, Peter John Preston, found that intestinal worms eliminated seasonal allergies. Almost 15 years ago, Jorge Coriali found that a variety of intestinal worms would eliminate multiple sclerosis. Joel Weinstock tried to bring these simple observations to the clinic. And Dr. Parker states, I've spent quite a bit of my academic career trying to figure out why the effort failed despite the fact that second part of your podcast will discuss many people have no problem getting worms to alleviate their immune condition. Fortunately, we know the answers. He goes on to state that we have the willpower to figure these problems out. And he goes back, looking back, we can see that all major medical innovations came from simple observations. Semmelweis noted that pregnant mothers didn't want to give birth in a hospital where the surgeons wore grime on their lab coats as a badge of honor. Jenner noted that milkmaids did not suffer from smallpox. Fleming noted that bacteria did not grow in the neighborhood of certain molds. Eichmann noted that feeding brown rice to chickens prevented beriberi. As a culture, we have put our common sense aside, ignoring simple yet critical observations. Instead, we are following a pharmaceutical paradigm masquerading as scientific discovery. Down an incomprehensibly expensive and ineffective path, we are paying a horrific price for this folly. He further goes on to state, we know what needs to be done and people are working on it. The hard part is for parents to figure out what to do until we get this straightened out and you can buy nice worms in the grocery store. I think that helping parents know what to do in this upside down world is critically important, which makes me very, very grateful for this podcast. In a nutshell, what we're going to talk about in this podcast is how over the past few thousand years, we as a human society have lost exposure to Specifically, in this case, we're going to talk about macrobes, which are these parasites. But in future podcasts coming in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about also the microbes, the bacteria that we've lost exposure to. And all of this is going to illustrate for you, the listener, where things are going wrong from an immune perspective. And specifically for me, it's very important that mothers and fathers understand, one, to help mom be in the best shape she can be, and two, help junior or you know or your daughter be in the best shape they can be once born i.e not going after all of these cleanliness beliefs and being more exposed to animals and trying to make sure the immune system is primed and tuned and we're going to go into all of these things so i hope that that little introduction was helpful and again i apologize for the quality of the audio cast um, as it came to be but nonetheless, it is here as is, and I will turn it over to Dr. William Parker. 
Hi, good afternoon, William Parker. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. I've been waiting for this for quite a while. You know, number four in the long line of really interesting topics, starting with Randy Jarrell and epigenetics, flipping over with Ken Cook and chemicals and how the chemicals are affecting us. And last week, I had a great discussion with Dr. Victoria Mazes talking about fertility and human health. And now we're going to dive deep into one of my favorite topics, the biome, and in your case, specifically biome depletion. So before we get into the big discussion, I just want everyone to know one thing about you. I think it's super cool. You know, you are a phenomenal researcher, but you also work in with metals. So tell me a little, just brief second about your hobby. Well, it's uh, it might even be a little more than a hobby. It's very addictive. I, I am a blacksmith. Um, I teach blacksmithing to the, to the Boy Scouts and other scouting organizations. Um, taught hundreds of kids, maybe up in the thousands now. And then we so I have sort of a community blacksmith group where um, we I have a forge in the backyard and we can take a bar of steel and make it into just about any kind of fun thing that we want, you know, functional or just for art. Or, you know, we've had some of my students have come over and made kitchen knives is one of the big things people love to make. So it's a little it's a little bit tedious making a kitchen knife because of the blade geometry and heat treatment and all that. But, um, there, there's a lot of other simpler things that people make. We have usually boys need to be about 10. Girls can be about nine years old um, because uh, girls mature a little bit faster than boys and they can come over and make something fun and functional to hang on their wall and put it in their closet. So that's a good thing for everyone to know if anyone's in the Raleigh-Durham area, look you up and start working on, working on blacksmithing. But let's really get into what we're here to talk about. And I'm really appreciative to have you on the show. So, you know, we understand, you know, the immune system like never before, right? We've been studying this thing for God knows as long as I can remember. I was back at UVA learning from one of my favorite people, Frank Salisbury, and it was pretty rudimentary compared to now, but still quite amazing stuff. Yet immune-related diseases continue to go get worse, going down a negative trajectory. You know, we have more autoimmunity, more allergy than ever. And, and so clearly we understand better, but we're going in the wrong direction. Women are suffering a higher proportion of self-attack as opposed to men. You like to call this, I think you call paranoid immune function. So I, I started looking into this stuff way back in the early, uh, early to mid nineties. And, and I ran across your paper in 2013 and I wanna read from, from it a little bit. It was in evolution, medicine and public health. Uh, quote, the primary factor associated with allergic and autoimmune disease is apparently loss of species diversity from the ecosystem of the human body, the human biome. Species depleted or even eliminated from the human biome include a wide range of pathogens, commensals, and mutualists, whose reproductive cycle is greatly diminished or even eliminated by modern sanitation, water treatment, and medical practices. Importantly, the human biome, as with other biomes, not only includes species that are permanent residents of the ecosystem, but also species that interact transiently with the ecosystem. The absence of species from the human biome leaves the immune system in a hypersensitive state that when combined with environmental triggers and genetic predisposition leads to allergic and autoimmune disease, end quote. That's an amazing description of what we're gonna get into in this, in this hour. You know, as an aside, I'd love to look at the epigenetic marks of immunity in, in groups of biome depleted, biome repleted people, as we were talking a little bit earlier, just to see what's going on there. But let's just say our friends are gone to some extent compared to how we've evolved over thousands of years. With that as a backdrop, why are women at higher risk or better said, how does the lack of 
parasitic or microbial exposure unhinge the immune system's natural balance with regard to T helper cells and immunity? Well, the, the question I think about why women are more at risk is a, is a very good one. Um, in laboratory mice, it's all about testosterone. You can reverse, you know, in mice, the, the, the females are more sensitive to immune dysregulation than are the males. And you can, you can fix, you can change that. You can take that away by affecting the, the by adding back in testosterone to the system, as, as I recall, some, someone's done that study. And what we, what biologists think is that women um, biologically spend more energy preserving their core. It has to do with probably childbearing and, and our history as a species. So the, the men maybe exert more energy building muscle mass and but they have to go out and hunt together. They may be, you know, in biological terms, a little more expendable than the female who is there. So the, it's a matter of how much energy the body spends on immune function, which of course normally is a good thing, right? That's right. again, to preserve the body, right? But in this environment, when our immune systems are getting essentially paranoid, and I think that's a good way to look at it from a lot of perspectives then having a very strong immune system is not advantageous, which is why we see so many more autoimmune conditions in women and a lot of the inflammation associated neuropsychiatric conditions as well. Yeah, so when you think about that, you know, historically with all these microbes, whether they're bacteria, viruses, parasites in our society for the better part of millennia, and within the last hundred years, we've industrialized the world, we've added probiotics, antibiotics, uh, all different kinds of, uh, chemicals that alter our our ecosystem, our environment, and and that has downstream effects immunologically. I know I was looking up before we got discussing today that you know parasites in general have have effects in humans that skew cytokine profiles, what you and I would call you know the the chemicals that send signals out within the immune system to favor killing of different pathogens. And I know parasites tend to tilt the system towards more release of IL-4 and less release of IL-17 and gamma interferon, which would then say, okay, we're less likely to tackle intracellular and extracellular bacteria and more likely to tackle parasites. And that's what's expected. But interesting enough, people who can't handle parasites tend to skew the other direction a little bit more and have failure of tolerance. And tolerance is the key word that we sort of need to get into a little bit, because I think that that's the where the rubber meets the road in human physiology. If we're not tolerating the natural immune world, we're getting into this, what you call paranoid state. And then I think that's where we're seeing this, this immune cytokine shift towards TH17, which is your autoimmune phenotype. And, and so, you know, when, when you look at early exposure to microbes, I think that that's gotta be the biggest piece of this pie for me, when we think about industrialization and change, you know, what do you say to that? Well, I think there's a lot of evidence that tells us it's not so much about the microbes. And we've just written a couple of papers about this and, and going back and looking at history. It, so if a 26 foot long tapeworm is not a microbe, right? It's not right. micro, it's microscopic. So this is a very interesting question. Is it about the microbes? If you want to change your microbes, the best thing to do, and if you want to change them in a good way is put fiber in your diet. Correct. Right? Have a good diet. That will change your microbes within about three days. So right. Lawrence Day did a good job with that study. Now you can actually, if you have no fiber for a very, very long time, you can lose the microbes. But there's there's 
tiny amounts of those fiber digesting microbes that linger about even though you've eaten only junk food for a while. And plus we put even white bread, American bread has a little bit of fiber in it. So you're giving, you're, you're sort of starving out those good bacteria and there's not a lot of them, but they're still kind of lingering about. So I think it's not, it's, it's, I don't want to diminish the importance of the microbes and certain things can happen to the microbes, especially once the system gets out of whack, then the microbes can start other, and it's a little bit complicated. We can happy to go into that if you want, but the, you've got some initial insults that can happen to your microbes. And by microbes, I mean your yeast, your bacteria, bacteriophages, viruses, those kind of things. And you've got some initial insults with the diet. If you hit it with antibiotics, of course, that's huge. A beautiful study came out of the surgery department in Chicago showing that if you hit some normal lab mice with antibiotics, it throws the microbes completely off whack for several days and they come back. But if they're on a zero fiber diet, you hit them with the antibiotics, it throws the microbes off and they never come back. So right. this is very, very important to understand that we're, we're not just hitting them with one thing, we're hitting them with lots. So, and again, I don't want to underplay the importance of the microbes, but these, let's just call them macrobes for right now, these larger yep. organisms that live in our gut, I think they are probably more important okay. in terms of their net effect on leading to a paranoid immune system, more important than the microbes. Now, and again, microbes are very important. And if you look at overall development of your immune system, certainly the microbes are much more important than the macros. But most of us get a pretty good fecal transplant when near the time of birth from our mother. So most of our microbes come across. The macrobes, though, have been lost. Okay. And right. so just to help the parent understand right now, so we're looking at this, they're all organisms, right? Specifically, we have viruses, we're super microscopic in the nanometer range with bacteria, which are a little bit larger. And we have these, what we call macrobes, you're saying these, these, these creatures that are visible with a microscope that actually have all effects. And every single one of these species of, of, of creature are affecting our, our immune system's response. Some greater than others is what I'm hearing you say. And, and as a mother listening to this podcast or a father, what, what I'm trying to get across, and I think you're going to get into a little bit more deeply, is that we've lost some of these natural friends and or some of the microbes that we're supposed to be getting and the macrobes are being dysfunctionally changed based on environmental events, antibiotic exposure for groupie strep during perinatally or intrapartum, you know, diets low in fiber. So all these things that we've talked about in, in, in last podcast and others. So it's this global picture, but specifically from your side of the coin, we're going to be looking at these macrobes or what we, what we used to call parasites, right? So, so the, the early exposure to, to these macrobes or these parasites, what did that do to the immune system from a, uh, from a, you know, a cytokine level or from a, a rubber meets the road level? That's a great question. So what, one of the things my lab did back in the nineties is we, we decided, okay, we've been looking at lab rats for a long time. Let's look at some wild rats. And we know that the big difference there is these macrobes. The wild rats have a lot of, and, and they have some microbes in addition. They have a lot of diseases that our lab rats don't have, but they also have, well, there's three main classes of macrobes. There's flatworms, there's roundworms, and they used to be called protozoans. They're protist. Right. Um, they're called now. So those are your three main classes. And of course, wild rats have a lot of those. 
So when we looked at the immune function in our wild rats, and we, we could try to control for genetics to a degree, what we found was almost everything is different. Uh, it's, it's the T cells, it's the B cells, it's the natural immunity, it's the, it's the T cell dependent immunity, it's T cell independent immunity, it's the antibodies, it's something called complement, even that your antibodies sort of trigger, that's a big defense mechanism your body uses to attack foreign substances. So it's, it's really the fact that we are so clean like our lab rats, it has a big effect on all aspects of life. Now, are we breed? So you notice that some humans are still healthy, even right. in our current environment. They don't have immune disease, and we breed our lab rats so that they will be healthy despite all these changes that we put in. So our lab rats are kind of this this little example of healthy in this environment, but it's still not normal. And that, that's the important thing to understand: is that most of the all of the scientific studies that we do these days are not on normal animals. They're on animals that are bred to be weird in this current environment. So the answer to your question is almost everything. Right. And so, so you, you, you know, you think of, I think of like key words, mutualism, you know, tolerance, symbiosis. And so again, for thousands of years, we've lived with microbes and macrobes in a very mutualistic way where we share nutrients we share different properties that allow us to then therefore benefit and them to therefore benefit and the only time it becomes problematical is with one group over over either utilizes or over produces something that the other group doesn't doesn't effectively need or want and so you know the lack of of exposure to some of these organisms in, in part is a cause of what we used to have. Our genetics have been set up for thousands of years to have X involved in our environment. And now X is no longer there. So how does the host genetics then play a part in this? Is that the major reason behind the increase in autoimmunity and, and, and asthma? We can get in the Hutterite study a little bit, even though it's a microbe, not a macrobe. But, you know, is that the major thing is that our genetics are mismatched now for the environment we find ourselves in missing these, these macrobes? So the answer to your question is yes. If you, if you change a system, then a certain proportion of people will begin to suffer. And the proportion of people that begins to suffer will depend largely upon genetics. So for example, if, if let's say we had an imaginary population where you just gave everybody cigarettes at the age of two, and they started smoking cigarettes at the age of two, right. the, the amount of lung cancer in that population would just go through the roof, right? right. And it would appear to be genetic in nature. This is very important to understand. We've made a fundamental change. So we're seeing a lot more people sick and it looks genetic in nature because of this effect. Because when you, if you know, if you take a bunch of fish and you put in heavy metals in the water, some will get sicker than others. And that's because of genetics. So they didn't grow up and they haven't lived in they didn't originate from waters with a lot of heavy metals. When you put right. the heavy metals in, the genetics suddenly become important. So we won't, I wouldn't blame their genetics. I think their genetics, their genetics are what they are. They're from that environment that they came from. But when then when you change the environment, suddenly genetics become very, very important. Right. 
Right. So, so we're going to get into some of the studies and when this, when this whole biome depletion theory started. But before we get in there, I want to talk about the illustrative uh, Stein study from New England Journal of Medicine back in 2016. Because I think even though it's a microbe, again, I think it's sort of poignant to really lay out for parents what, a, what, a, what an overclean environment really means. And in this study, they looked at two different sort of genetic, genetically similar enclaves of, of humans, the Amish and the Hutterites, which live sort of on farming type communities. The Amish, most people know about, Hutterites may not so much, but the difference being most of the Amish have single family farms where the kids all live within the framework of the farm where the animals are. And so they're exposed to lots of bacteria and, and, and different organisms, parasites presumably as well. And the Hutterites, it's a mechanistic system a little bit more where the fathers then go into the main area where the, the farming is and the kids are sort of peripherally in the homes where they're not exposed to as much dust of, of microbes, what they call endotoxin. They had 30 kids in each arm. And what they found was pretty incredible. You know, the Amish children, because the high exposure to the microbe dust had six times less, so six, 6x less asthma and allergies as opposed to the other group. And then when they looked at the dust, they found that there was six times less endotoxin in the dust of the Hooterite home. So by definition, the proof of concept there was, okay, the lack of exposure to microbes early on allowed these children by age seven to start showing up differently phenotypically to what we call asthma allergy, which is clearly a huge problem in society. And then they went on a little further and looked at a mouse model of experimental allergic asthma, a murine model, and said, okay, let's give some intranasal dust um, and we'll take it from the Amish, uh, but not the Hooterite homes and look at what happens. And they found lo and behold that the protective effects occurred in these mice um, and, and that helped them. And then they looked at it and, and also went and said, what happens if we give it to mice that are missing MYD88 and TRIF and found that the, those molecules are critical in innate immune signaling. And that was, it flip-flopped it right back. So, you know, when you look at this data, this is clearly modern, you know, recent study, you know, it's getting, it got a lot of press when it came out, but this stuff's been around for a while and you know the history of this really well. So when did we really start to understand that we were missing microbes and macrobes? Well, I think the, right, that's a, that's a great observation that we have known about this for a long time. We are learning more and more about it. I talked with David Strachan, a British epidemiologist, still alive today. I talk, he's the one that that first decided about this hygiene hypothesis idea and that, that if you get a lot of infections, and this is the way he looked at it, he just looked at it as infections. And we know that this is not the most of the picture now, but it was the beginning of it. This is in, in 1988, he figured out if you get a lot of infections as, as a child, then you're less likely to suffer when you get older. And he was, and when I, I talked to him about this and he said, look, I was ridiculed at that time. And the reason why is because there was no known mechanism. Right. It was, and it reminds me of Ignaz Zimmelweis, right? The famous, uh, the famous clinician that figured out you really should wash your hands before working with, you know, doing surgery on a patient. And he got ridiculed because nobody understood what an infection was. So these modern studies are very important to try to get our modern scientists and clinicians to understand what's going on so that we can right. go back and fix the problem. Right, helping uh, us understand observations of the past. Uh, helping us understand observations of the past. Now, this hasn't always been the case, right? So sometimes, so even though people didn't really understand it, when Jenner saw that the milkmaids weren't getting 
smallpox or weren't suffering from smallpox, their cases were very mild. He figured it out, okay, we give, we need to give everybody cowpox, and then the vaccines were born. So, right. and, and it worked. Um, the the bottom line is, yeah, we've known about this for a long time. This the study that you're referring to from 2016 is super interesting. So they did look at bacteria, and if you you look in those Amish households, if you collect the dust, it's full of bacteria. But if you look at the group that's industrialized, genetically similar, they don't have much bacteria in their dust. And so what is it, right? It, it might be just chemicals from the environment, you know, um, clothing that's shedding particles. We don't really know what is in that dust, but we know that Amish households, they, they go out and they work in the dirt. So you get right. dirt, you know, and going back to earlier conversations, that's one of the big differences in our microbiome. If you look at non-human primates, uh, monkeys, for example, you will see that they have two kinds of bacteria on their skin. They have dirt bacteria and they have fecal bacteria. We don't have any of those on our skin because we use soap and we don't come in contact with the dirt. Um, so there, the bottom line is that, yeah, the the dust inside those households is really different. They didn't look though for what we think is the big deal with the Amish is they're in contact with these farm animals all the time. And they're probably exposed temporarily to these larger organisms, probably, probably some protists and then you know, maybe some worms as well, but they're, they're not full of parasites, Amish children or not but right. they're still exposed to these things on a regular basis. And I think eventually we'll come to talking about the kinds of organisms that we might consider using in the future to normalize immune function. They're probably very similar to what the Amish get exposed to accidentally on a regular basis. Yeah, I, I tend to think of this like I tend to think of most things. I, I don't think one thing is the answer ever in these situations. I think that the probability is that when you look at these studies, we're looking at a global picture of all the different organisms that existed normally. And when we're exposed to all the different organisms in a normal ecosystem, the likelihood is that our system functions better with more tolerance. And so that you're probably exactly right, that even though that study predominantly looked at endotoxin and bacteria, there probably were many other forms of microbial or macrobial exposure that was driving this. And I think from the parents' perspective, moms and, and, and dads, listen to this discussion. It really, to me, leads to the basic premise that when you have a child, and even before pregnancy, our exposure to dirt, farming, animals should be common, right? And, and, and avoidance of antimicrobial soaps and all of these things that are otherwise, you know, vogue right now for cleanliness is, is in, in, in effect, is giving us the exact opposite of what we want, which is long-term immune solvency and immune tolerance. So I tend to look at this very clearly as what you're stating in a very simplistic way for parents is get dirty. And then once a kid's born, get dirty. You know, I remember when my son was first born, I was heavy into this stuff because I loved immunology. You know, Frank taught me everything that I knew at the time. And I thought he was the smartest guy I'd ever met. So I thought immunology was the route to go. And then I flipped over to allergy and, you know, read Strachan's work and box work. And I thought I knew it all. And it still was pretty stupid, but I thought I knew a lot more than I did. And then I had a child in 03 
And I remember I had a dog and it would come by and lick my son's face and I would love it. My wife would come around the corner who she was born in a home that had a little bit more of a cleanliness factor. And so she would yell at the dog, the dog would run away. And then, and then my wife would leave the room. I'd call the dog back. The dog would lick my son's face again. And so we had this little bit of a battle and it should probably kill me for saying this, but you know, that was the reality at the time because I was pretty convinced early on that that's what we needed to be doing was exposing these kids from a, from a base age to as much microbial and macrobial exposure as possible. So, you know, that leads me to where I want to go next. And, and, and this is going to get into the autoimmune world a little bit again. And, and you, in reading your paper, you know, you had written a lot of information on there. And I, um, I'm going to go back and find, I think it was table one was really illustrative. You know, most of the major diseases of allergy immunity have a component of industrialization, immune activation, and gender specificity, right? And so you look at that and you go, okay, there's something going on here. Industrialization coupled to immune activation coupled to gender specificity. We know that diversity and tolerance are key. So what's really going on? So let's flip over to neurobehavior a little bit. And, and I wanna talk about a recent study that just came out in January in molecular psychiatry. And they found that through machine learning, they could identify autoantibody biomarkers that were 100% associated with autism with, when they found a specific pattern in other words, the mothers of autistic children with autoimmune antibodies in their blood targeted certain proteins, the infant's developing brain in utero, and was associated with 100% of the cases. Now, this was only 18% of the ones studied. So it's a subset of autistic spectrum disorder in general, but it, it's, it's really profound you know, that, that they're finding now what we think of autoimmunity being a trigger of a lot of the diseases of, of, of human you know, existence right now. That was in a study, Ramirez Celes um, was the, was the uh, article uh, author, if anyone's interested in 2021, again, in molecular psychiatry, but the mechanisms I think were more interesting. They found that the antibodies were against collapse and response mediator proteins and guanidine deaminase proteins and some others. And these were all heavily related to, to neuroplasticity and neural development. So it even mechanistically makes sense. So when we're talking about these disorders and autism being, you know, one of the number one problems on human minds right now in, in America, you know, your work that we're going to get into now is, is, is pretty incredibly powerful if we can get it to the place where we could potentially reverse this prenatal autoimmune problem, right? So let's look into some of that work, some of the, you know, uh, macrobe, macrobiome research in, in, in behavior. And then we could talk about Joel Weinstock's work. So take it from there. Okay. Yeah. And you're, you have an excellent point, doctor. The, the bottom line is if we could normalize immune function in mothers before they get pregnant and especially in utero, and then in the children, I believe, you know, Clearly, autism is associated with a tremendous amount of inflammation. I've worked with Stacey Bilbo, who's a renowned you know, neuroscientist on this topic, and we've written a couple of papers about this, but there's no disagreement. Autism is associated with this paranoid immune system, as you pointed right. out with the autoantibody problem. Even though patients without the autoantibodies, they clearly have immune problems. Right. So, so the question is then, what do we do about this? And it, at that point, we can go back and look through time, especially when we're looking at autoimmunity. There, there's an Argentinian clinician, his name is Jorge Coriel, and about 15 years ago, he saw that if you accidentally got an intestinal worm, and we think, oh my God, that's horrible. 
And some intestinal worms are something you don't want to get, but some of them you've never heard of because they don't cause any problem. They're not a parasite. They're not dangerous. They just happen to be there and everybody ignores them because again, they don't cause a problem. He, what he noticed was that in his patients with multiple sclerosis, the MS would go away if his patients actually got a worm. And he had a couple of patients eventually in a later study that also had these, these they're bigger than bacteria and yeast, they're protozoans or protists that, that also has essentially the same effect. So of course we can tell any of these larger organisms, those three classes, the, the flatworms, roundworms, and, and protists will have a similar effect on autoimmune function. And going back in time, Brian Greenwood, 1968, uh, he's still alive today. Um, he's been knighted, he's Sir Brian Greenwood. Now he spent his life working on malaria vaccines, but his initial studies were these studies in 1968, which showed that it's the absence of these kinds of things that we usually call parasites that were leading to autoimmunity. And within two years, this was back in the day, so things moved a little bit faster. There wasn't as much bureaucracy in the scientific system. Within two years, he showed that he could prevent both lupus and rheumatoid arthritis in laboratory animals in models that we still use today. So if he had a cure for this problem and that we're still studying today back in 1970, just by adding in some of these um, macrobes that normally live in our gut. So that's, we think that if we could do this, if we can implement this system-wide, we would decrease a tremendous amount of, um, of neuroinflammatory type disorders, including autism. Now, I should add here that we believe that the drug acetaminophen, which is commonly found in 400 medications for children, we believe that exposure to that, especially from birth to about age five, is a big player in this. But it, that drug by itself, most children that take that drug, of course, are perfectly safe. Um, but if you combine that with inflammation with a paranoid immune system, then you've got a, a particularly bad mix. And do you think that has to do with glutathione effects and ROS or? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think you understand it perfectly. Yes. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. So that that's, uh, again, it call, falls into the world of what I like to say, don't take a drug unless you have no choice um, for survival. Drugs should be left on the side if, if at all possibility um, because the downstream effects in certain subpopulations are a big thing. I remember reading a quote from Mark Cuban, of all people, the Mavericks head, head uh, owner, and he was sort of talking about it's going to be amazing in 2040 when we look back at, at how we did drug therapy and realize that, you know, 10% on each side of, uh, of the bell curve are getting screwed every time, yet we gave this across to everybody with zero targeted, you know, health. And I, I think that's, you know, functional medicine, integrative medicine has finally decided in the last, you know, 30 years and gaining traction now that everybody's an individual. We have to treat each person as an individual instead of this class effect because we all have different genetics and epigenetic marks and, and, and drugs are problematical. Like you said, some people tell us fine. Man, in the wrong mix, Tano's devastating, and, and I totally agree. All right, so so Joel Weinstock. Let me just add to that. Let me add to that, and this, I think this is really important that you, sir, are very, very rare. The average pediatrician believes that that drug is safe, and yeah. when we prove we've done the study. I had four students working on it. We worked on it for eight months. We have proven that it's ne it's hard to prove a negative. We did it though. We proved it was never proven safe for neurodevelopment. 
Right. And all of the current studies are showing that it's not safe. So, I, so while, while you, sir, are somehow wonderfully, beautifully enlightened, the average pediatrician, which the average mother trusts, is right. not. It's not their job to know the literature. They just believe it's safe. They have this faith in the system, and um, it's, it's, diff it's difficult. It makes it yeah, very difficult for the average parent who wants to trust that person with all this knowledge and training in a white lab coat. Yeah, and it's a bit frustrating for me on that same level because, you know, for me, the number one drug over abuse right now is antibiotics by a long shot. You know, I get so many patients coming back from urgent cares and ERs, and I'm not going to pick on them per se, but that's the volume that I see the most where drugs are being prescribed in, a, in an inefficient and, and frankly, uh, disproportionately wrong manner. And unfortunately, the downstream effect of that is very bad, as you well know. And so, yeah, it's a tough sell. So, Let's talk about one more, you know, researcher, and then I want to flip into your sort of prescription for the future. Now that we sort of laid out the framework of where we have been and where we need to go. So let's look at some of the IBD work, you know, Joel Weinstock and others really sort of sat down and said, hey, you know, this, this TSO or pig uh, tapeworm, if I remember correctly, it's another flatworm. Had, had whipworm, yeah, TSO whipworm, whipworm, yes, whipworm. All right, so so you know, go back to 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 what he had done, I, you know, and he basically had shown that you could put IBD in into a remissive state with the exposure to to macrobes. So what did we learn there? I've spent a lot of time studying Joel Weinstock's work, and the long and the short of it is, Joel did some initial studies, wonderful studies. They got a they got almost 80% cure rate on, I mean, cure by cure, I mean, as long as the organisms were in, the parents were, the patients were in remission. So what happened then was as they moved it into clinical trials, it simply put that organism failed. Um, and I think the problems are several fold. Number one is when you, when you create a company to make these organisms, you really need to know what you're doing. It's not the same as making an, an aspirin or a steroid. It's you, because you're working with the living organism, if you formulate it the wrong way, it just doesn't work anymore. I was working at that time with the medical doctors who were running these trials. And I knew from talking with the suppliers that, hey, there's something wrong with this formula, but the medical doctors who were running the studies didn't even know. So it, it was quite... Um, it's just sort of a tragedy, I think. And then on top of that, you know, with these organisms, one size doesn't fit all. And they just didn't have the time or the resources to do the study. It's called a dose escalation study. You got to start out real low. And people right. that are using these organisms today, this is how they do it. They start out low and they work their way up slowly. If you just start out with a whopping dose, you might get very, very sick. And then, of course, if you just do the middle zone dose, then the people who need the whopping dose are not going to get anything. And still, there's going to be some people that get overdosed, uh, similar to what you were talking about earlier. So it's uh, with with our drug. So, right. Yeah. So the bottom line is that there were a lot of problems with the drug formulation, a lot of problems with how they administered the drug. And on top of that, they were looking at inflammatory bowel disease. Now, inflammatory bowel disease is notorious for being a combination of the macrobiome and the microbiome. So you, you really need to deal, if you want to pick that disease, this is, it's not a good disease to pick if you want to just study one type of organism. So if right. I was going to pick, I would say, hey, let's study just a seasonal allergy or let's study chronic sinusitis or let's study 
an autoimmune disease that I know is mostly affected by the macrobiome. Right. It's still, again, the microbiome plays a role, but it depends on which disease you're looking at, how, what the balance is. And with the one that Joel picked, unfortunately, like I said, it worked really well in the initial study when he was looking at patients who couldn't be cured by pharm- pharmaceuticals. Right. But later, when you run the clinical trial, plus you're not getting a bunch, you might get a bunch of patients that have just been diagnosed. And 40% of them are going to get better anyway, right? Because they just had, they had a temporary illness that resolved itself. So you're looking at 40% resolution in the placebo groups and you've got all kinds of problems. I could just go on and on. And this is a standard problem in the industry. And unfortunately, Joel wasn't involved in those later studies. So this, it basically, you know, it got handed off from Ovamed and Coronado, different companies that were running it. Now they're just all gone, essentially. Yeah. So Tana, Tana Visa is the company that still sells the organism with the original formulation. The doctors tell me it's still working in their patients um, fairly well. It's the problem with it, of course, it's very expensive. So it, it makes me think of Dale Bredesen's work with, with Alzheimer's nowadays, the Buck Institute, where, you know, again, in $8 billion of failed Alzheimer's drugs, they're trying to find the magic bullet instead of what we do in life is we develop problems as a, a web of dysfunction. You know, it's not yep. one pathway, but multiple pathways. So maybe it's hitting it with a macrobe and the microbiome and a ton of fiber and the right diet and the stress reduction. You know, females, I think one of the biggest problems in women these days is unfortunately unbelievably high amounts of psychological stress. I mean, I can't tell you how many women I know in my 22 years that could not get pregnant and then adopted a child and within nine months had Irish twins because they had a natural birth and now have two kids roughly around the same age because the stress burden disappeared. So we know stress has a huge effect on physiology. So I would think, you know, and we're going to get into now what your work, future work is going to be that that biome restoration is a piece of a total plan of health, not the only plan. It's fixing the microbiome of the, the macro the microbes of the gut through fiber and, and, and avoidance of drugs and health, but also, Hey, how do, you know, flatworms or roundworms or any other kind of normal parasite that is not dysfunction for us have a, have an effect on us. So where are you now in your research now that you've left Duke, what are you up to and what can we look forward to hopefully down the road that might have some benefit for human health? Well, I think we're, we're, at the point, and we can talk about this some more, where in my opinion, we don't really need more research. We, we need to take a shot on the goal. You know, okay. instead of dribbling around the court, making more publications, and we, we're still going to be making more publications. We'll still be working on that, especially as the debate evolves, you know, what's the importance of the macrobes, what's the importance of the microbes, those kinds of things. You know, and we could talk about COVID-19, right? We made a prediction that per infection, age-adjusted, COVID-19 is not going to be as dangerous in these developing countries that have plenty of these macrobes. Right. And it looks like that that prediction is correct. So despite the virus literally sweeping through whole entire populations, we just don't see the kind of mortality that we see here in the U.S. And a lot of the U.S. mortality is associated with these kinds of hyperimmune, paranoid immune reactions. Right. Yeah. Met, what I call what I call lifestyle induced metabolic disease. Yep, exactly. So I think we need to go ahead and start working on trying to get 
these organisms out there so that people can cert initially the idea is if you've got a severe allergy, you've got a severe problem with the paranoid immune system, there's going to be some people that just can't take them. It goes back to your, we need individualized medicine. We can't just give them to everybody because a few people will have bad reactions. And I think we can figure out how, who those people are and how to identify them in advance. We need to get them to the people who aren't going to have bad reactions. And importantly for the future, we just need to give them to everybody just as a preventative measure. But we're a long way away from that. We still need to treat them as a drug now and go through the FDA because that's how the regulations are set. So in the absence of that yet, right? So we have years, maybe hopefully not too many years before we start hitting the goalpost with this. What would you recommend mothers do for themselves pre-birth during pregnancy and, and after a child's born? You know, this is not a prescription, you know, from a medical provider. This is more of a biome repletion researcher saying, hey, this makes the most sense evolutionarily. What would you say we should be doing you know, as a society, should we all have animals in our yards? Should we all go visit petting zoos? You know, how does this play out in your mind? Right. Yeah. And, and to your point, I can't make a prescription for people. That would be unethical. Right. So, but that being said, right, we definitely have good ideas about what should be done. And you've, you've made a good point earlier that it's not just changing the biota and losing some of these organisms. It's also stress. Right. It's also a poor diet. It's altered sleep cycle. All the things that Del Bredesen looks at when he looks at what causes Alzheimer's disease and how can we reverse it if we catch it at early stage. So we kind of we, we kind of know that this biota depletion is very, very important. And we know that it plays in with these other things. Now, these other things we can definitely control. So that's starting point is be aware, watch out for your toxin exposure, that the kinds of things that you talk about week in and week out, beware the stress, beware of the factors in your life, the diet that are making you unhealthy, knowing that you've got this other issue kind of looming that'll make matters worse. So you're kind of susceptible to question now. So that's number one, control what you know you can control. Number two, what do you do right now about the biota alteration? So the, we don't know that that playing in the dirt, I mean, there's certain bacteria in the dirt that are very beneficial. We don't know that those would help alleviate autoimmune allergic or neuropsychiatric conditions. We just don't know that. We, we're very confident that the larger the macrobes will, um, but you can you, you can get a macro. We certainly can't recommend it. They're not FDA approved. And since parents are left with a tough choice, especially once their child gets sick is do I wanna try this therapy, which hasn't been, been approved. Now, most of the suppliers of these things are established. They've been around for a long time. They're not selling you know, snake oil. They're selling the actual organisms that they say they're selling. And in the market right now, it doesn't tolerate somebody who's a charlatan. So if right. you're not, they're, they are selling what they say they're selling, but of course they don't come with instructions on how to use these things. And it becomes up to the parent to educate themselves. It's a, it's, it's the kind of thing we really don't want to see, but it's unavoidable right now where there, where the decision is on the parent. A lot of the medical doctors, it's not their job to be educated about these things. So they don't know. Some of the medical doctors will even do something that I consider very unethical. They have no idea about the therapy and they'll just say, no, you can't do it. You just shouldn't do it. If you don't want to, I'm not going to even, someone will say, I'm not going to treat you if you're going to do this therapy, even though they're not aware of the literature. 
you know, I can speak to that because I have an older partner who's 83 years old and way back in the early 90s, or his late 90s, actually, I think he was talking about culturel, you know, lactobacillus GG, you know, this early probiotic, this bacteria that we're giving to people for, you know, dysentery or whatever. And I remember how many physicians, oh, this is poison. You can't be giving this. These could kill people. And then usher in the era of probiotics, which still has a long way to go. I still think we're in the penicillin stage of probiotics, but there's clear evidence, you know, now that, that, you know, again, these bacteria are part of our existence and missing them is not a good thing. And that the, the, the slant of the bacteria, what we call dysbiosis drives dif- disparate immune function. So again, it makes sense to me that the macros are part of this game too. And why don't we have probiotics in macro form? And I mean, this is exactly, I think what I would say you're doing is basically a macrobiotic, right? And so I look forward to following your work and seeing where this goes and hoping and praying that this becomes part of our armamentarium of what I call functional medicine, you know, therapy as, as opposed to, you know, hiding in the winds and not getting anywhere. I think this is the future um, for all of us as probiotics are going to be growing and getting smarter and stronger and more targeted. I think this is the path, you know, moving forward. And so, you know, I appreciate all of the work you've done and, and again, have enjoyed following you for years, you know, as the research comes out and, and look forward to the future of where you're going to be with all of this information. And hopefully we'll be on the front lines of when you do hit the, hit the right decision and which, bu- which microbe I'll be one of the first to say, hey, here we go, folks, this is what I've been waiting on. And so I have, you know, one last question for you, unless there's something else you want to go at. You know, that to me, I always ask all of my guests, you know, if there's one policy you could have changed at the federal level, you know, mine has always been the same. I would change school lunch. I think we're killing our kids through feeding them poor quality food. For you, is there anything policy wise that you would want to, you know, go on high at the Capitol Hill and say, hey, guys, change this tomorrow, because that you think will have a huge downstream effect on human health or human existence? Right. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll point out to your listening audience, you didn't tell me you were going to ask this question, but many, many bottles of wine have been consumed considering this question. And the answer <laughs> is absolutely yes. We would immediately say, look, this microbiome, you can't, it's, it's insane to treat this as a drug. This is what happened with the fecal transplant. It's why it took it more than 60 years. And the number of people that died from that just in the United States alone from not having a fecal transplant is astronomical. And the amount of people suffering right now from not having these macrobes is almost just, if you look at major depressive disorder in women, it's yeah. 20%, 20% yeah. of of women, it's huge. And that's not a trivial illness. So yeah. I would say Congress, look, this is not a drug. This is just a natural part of our body. Treat it like a food, treat it like a, an organ transplant. Let the local, people work on it prepare it you know that's the way that the 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 drug pipeline right now is so expensive and it's so hard to get a patent on these naturally occurring organisms that basically you've you've set the law so that no company even wants to touch it and if, if that were changed then you know, you, you could find your local farmer would just start, Hey, I think, you know, okay. Yeah. I know how to make this. I, I see the paper over here that, that these guys published in this, this journal and I'll try it. And if my friends like it, then I'll sell it to them. And that's the way it should be. 
Yeah, when you think about it, could you imagine trying to make the first vaccine now, you know, smallpox and what they went through at that time? It would have never happened. We would have never, ever it would have never vaccines. happened. Yeah. No. We would have been and same thing with the, yeah, the antibiotics, which of course right. are being overused now, you know, the same, it's the same problem with the and vitamin D also when they, they had so many, so much rickets and there's just a couple of companies said, Hey, let's just fortify our milk. You couldn't yeah. do that today. Yeah. And so now that we're having to drop our milk consumption because we're getting overnourished, we're having problems with vitamin D deficiency again. So, and we can't just solve the problem the way we did it last time. Well, unfortunately, one of the biggest problems we have with kids and milk now is they just can't tolerate it as a as a protein anymore. To your point, it's not a allergy so much as it's in a IgG based immune dysregulation. And I have babies all the time now, almost one in four at birth are having to go to soy milk or, or another half of those people are going to a hydrolyzed milk in order to survive it. And, and it just gets to the point again that our immune dysregulation is so powerful right now that we're losing all kinds of common historical events are disappearing from our ability to tolerate them. And, and again, if, if and when we get to a point where macrobes become part of the lexicon of change, I, I look forward to the day where I see a reverse trend in milk tolerance and kids are no longer you know, walking around with, you I have to write constant notes for no dairy, no peanut, no this, no that. It'll be a nice day where I could write, hey, send your kid to school, end of story, have a great day, folks, I love you. Uh, but we're not there yet. Unfortunately, we're still on the trend in the wrong direction. So, you know, on that note, you know, I really appreciate the hour. William, you are a breath of fresh air in the space of, of knowledge that I've been working in for a while. It is a joy to talk to somebody who understands this information at a level that I've been trying to come close to understanding for quite a while and I'm nowhere near. But I think the parents that have listened to this hour will really understand how important it is to really take stock in the lifestyle choices that we all are involved in that affect us on every level, psychologically, microbially, macrobially. And, and so to that end, I really appreciate your time. It's, it's been my pleasure. And, and to your point, I mean, it, where I work or where I have worked for almost 30 years, stress is a badge of honor. If you're not stressed, it means there's something wrong with you because you're not taking life seriously. That is a bad way of thinking, a yeah. very bad way of thinking. So we Lifestyle choices, very important. And then we'll work on this biome depletion business. And um, I think you and I might both know people that could tomorrow, if the laws were changed, just start producing some very, very beneficial organisms. So we'll, yeah. we'll keep plugging away on it. See how, it how, goes. how cool would that be? Oh, that'd be wonderful. Hey, appreciate your hour. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. So there you have it, folks. A fantastic conversation with Dr. William Parker. He is uh, an exceptional researcher and has really blazed some trails down roads I think we really need to go down as we attempt to stem the tide of autoimmune and allergic type disease. And for everyone listening, I apologize again for the quality of the audio, but the information provided is just so excellent. I hope you made it through. Either way, it is always great to have you on the Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. Thank you so much for your time. And as always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. 
This podcast does not constitute the formation of a patient-provider relationship. Have a great day.